0: Welcome to Altered States of Context, a podcast about psychedelics, science, and psychotherapy. On this show, we'll talk about the uneasy fit between a medicalized view of individual mental illness and a psychedelic view of suffering and change, and we'll explore many of the possibilities, opportunities, and pitfalls that emerge from this union. In addition, we'll keep it weird and talk about some of the aspects of psychedelic experiencing that make it so interesting, fun, and transformative. Welcome to Episode 2 of Altered States of Context. Today we will bite off the considerable challenge of trying to describe the indescribable. Psychedelic experiencing is famously difficult to describe using words. This is why contextual behavioral science can be such a useful lens, a conceptual lens, through which to view what's happening during psychedelic states. Today we'll talk and unpack that a little bit and see how contextual behavioral science can be a very useful overview when we're trying to understand what's going on and a very useful framework with which to discuss and talk about the psychedelic experience and how we can best leverage it therapeutically. So enjoy. Episode 2. Today, we're going to address one fundamental question and the implications of that question and other questions that arise as we attempt to answer it. The question I want to answer, or at least explore today, is why does theory even matter? You know, we're a podcast that we're going to take a functional contextual approach and we are both ACT therapists. So in our work, theory is quite important. You know, It helps me conceptualize the work I'm doing, you know, make sense of the work I'm doing and at root make sense of the world around me. And I think one of the focuses of this podcast is going to be on using words descriptions theories to usefully describe the psychedelic experience so that's not sort of an obvious slam dunk i think for a lot of people a lot of you know it's easy it's understandable to me that you would just focus on the experience itself and say wow that's it the experience is the experience that's that's what matters you know and what does even matter what you say about it you just go you have the experience you let it blow your mind and there you go. And, you know, I don't know that theory adds anything to the experience, but I think it really can help us make sense of it. And that sense making is an important process.
1: What are your thoughts about about this question? Why does theory matter? Before we go into talking about what one way of approaching this is, it is a really Great question to ask. Why does theory matter? What does theory offer in terms of psychedelics and really any experience in life? And so as you mentioned, you use the word sense making or meaning making. And as human beings, we just kind of automatically all the time are making meaning out of our experience whether we are trying to do that on purpose or not it's like kind of hard not to make meaning out of things that happen to us and so psychedelic experiences altered state of consciousness is a very unusual experience. In some ways, there's no words to describe it. Words really fall apart when we start to try to describe what happens, let's say when you take mushrooms or you take ayahuasca. And so it brings up this question, how do we talk about these experiences and what do they mean in our day-to-day life? And so for me, this topic of theory brings up in psychedelic work, this idea of preparation and integration, which is just as important. And I would argue that in some cases, potentially more important than the actual experience itself. So when we talk about psychedelics, we're not just talking about what happens in that you know, six to eight hour window, let's say, depending on what, whatever it is you're taking but what are your ideas and thoughts and perspectives going into it and then when you come out of it how do you try to understand what happened and how do you try to apply things that you might have learned or insights you might have gained into your daily life you said um words fall apart uh and
0: that you know and that's absolutely of course, sort of experientially true. If you've been through that experience, the, the words just sort of dissolve. Uh, they dissolve their meaning; meaning they lose what they refer to. They they lose their reference, and that's commonly described in uh, research with psychedelics or just people who have been around that culture a lot. You know, the ineffability of the experience. It's just words fail to describe it, and words fail in the middle of it to mean much of anything at all. And it is a real paradox here because we have this, you know, six to eight hour experience where, you know, we're in and out of language in and out of the ability to even use words in and out of the ability to make meaning of the experience that we're having. And then we get out of it and our minds immediately into overdrive, you know, what the hell just happened and how do I, you know, that, that sort of big open gaping question of what in the world is one that I think I don't know about everybody for me, that's sort of impossible to leave alone. It's like, I have to make sense of this. I have to understand this in some way that my, my small mind, the mind that thinks the mind that normally we go through life thinking, this is my mind uh, encounters that experience and says, wow, what what do we do with that? So that paradox of a completely ineffable experience, plus the need to, describe it and the use of language tools, uh, potentially now the tools of science to try to describe it is, you know, it's a really interesting balancing act. And I think that it's one of the reasons that a functional contextual approach to science is so useful for this in particular. And so let's take just a second and talk about what a functional contextual approach is. And I think one of the first things that's important about a functional contextual approach is that it is aontological. So when you are studying something from a functional contextual perspective, you are not concerned about the ultimate nature of reality. You're not, you're, the theory you're using is not meant to be a description that is ultimately true. It's meant to usefully serve the aims in which you are, you know, what you're aiming at. Um, so therefore, you know, I, there's like um, Rick Strassman's experiments that he did out. I think it was in New Mexico, right, um, where he studied DMT uh, in volunteers, and you know they started to see these repetitive descriptions of things that like just simply don't make sense. They just don't make sense at all from you know rational point of view, and I think it's pretty easy to get derailed if you see those things to say, what are they? We have to understand, is that real? Like, is that really real? Is that really happening? Or is that like imagined? Like what's going on here? And you can go way down that rabbit hole of trying to figure out, is this real or is this not real? What is real? What's not? But from a functional contextual perspective, we don't have to concern ourselves too deeply with that question of, is this real or not? We're really looking at, well, what is the function of this experience and how does this impact you know, the experiencer, you know, a lot of people are going to use psychedelics and they're going to want to really play with that idea of what's real and what's not. And that's fine. You know, but from a scientific perspective, I believe that that's a rabbit hole that just goes infinitely down and doesn't give us anything. But if we let that question alone and just say, well, our goal is to actually help people suffer less, or our goal is to you know help people move through stuck points and make changes in their life. Or our goal is to learn how to, you know, help People become more connected with their environment, which might be a goal for somebody. Okay, this can this can sort of we can study that. You know, we have something that we're aiming at. Versus, is this real or not? Uh, I call this myself because uh, I'm, I'm a Sturgill Simpson fan. I love to listen to his music, and he has a song called "Turtles All the Way Down." Uh, reptile aliens made of light cut you open. And pull out all your pain is a line from song, And I call this sort of the functional, content, the um, reptile alien problem. So when you're in psychedelics, these weird things, these reptile aliens, for example, that may happen. We don't have to know if they're real or not. What we're focused on is, okay, so it seems to alleviate pain. Okay, that's an observable thing that we can look at and we can have aims around. We don't have to know. Is like, well... Are those real ep- reptile aliens? They came down and they cut you open. Like, oh, how do we study that? Doesn't matter. Yeah.
1: So it, that 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 property or that um, feature of this contextual behavioral science approach that we're describing is really useful in the terrain of psychedelics, um, where there's lots of weird things like reptile aliens that that show up. Um, I would, you know, an example of of what. Nate's describing here is uh, like working with a client who believes that they're a failure. They'll say, I'm a failure. They have this thought, they have this belief. And from an aontological perspective, uh, I don't need to get into a true false tug of war with this client and try to prove to them they're not a failure. uh, So that would be an ontological way of approaching it. But what CBS offers is I don't really need to be concerned about truth. I'm more concerned about function. What thought, what, um, what benefit does does living your life according to that belief serve or, or provide for you? Like, has that helped you move closer to a life that means something to you? And that's what we mean by pragmatic or workability. And so, Mm -hmm. when we talk about psychedelics, you know, from a big, broad scope, psychedelics kind of fit in a lot of different uh, domains. They can be analyzed from a spiritual or religious perspective, they can be analyzed at a biological perspective, the neuroscience of what's happening in the brain. And what we're focusing on is the psychological perspective in terms of helping people alleviate suffering. That's what we try to do as therapists. And so what's the most useful way, what's the most useful frame for approaching psychedelics and their experiences that allows us to accomplish that goal of alleviating suffering in the folks that we work with?
0: Yes, exactly. So that sort of a ontological stance really flows right into a pragmatic worldview, you know, more not concerned with, um, I mean, pragmatism, you know, in the in the tradition sort of of William James, not concerned with determining the ultimate nature of things, but what works, basically answering that question, what works. Um, and so I love that, you know, you used a clinical example. And I think it's important to bring in as as many clinically relevant examples as possible and that's a really tremendously important process i know that when i do therapy it's you can get into a bottomless argument much like you can get into a bottomless scientific cul-de-sac when you try to figure out are these are these aliens real or not well uh, multiple people describe the same exact thing um without knowing each other in a, you know in a controlled setting they come out and they describe exactly the same thing uh, is this a phenomenon of the brain or their actual like you like you can just go down a huge rabbit hole well it's the same thing you know uh, you can go down the rabbit hole with the client Uh, I feel like I'm a failure you're not a failure oh but I am a failure well here look at this reason that reason and this reason these all show that you're not a failure yeah but how about this that and the other thing those are reasons that i am a failure and i'm sure you and i have experienced that enough to know that that it's a very futile game and you know i think many of our listeners can probably relate you know in your own mind you know it's hard to talk yourself out of something that on some level you believe and so i think it's more useful to be able to step back and really take a look at that belief and notice its pragmatic effect and how you want to relate to that belief rather than to try to argue with it figure out if it's true, figure out if it's false, because all you do is you end up getting really, really hung up on it. So that ontological stance leads to a pragmatism that is useful both scientifically, but also clinically. Uh, you know, we're, we're concerned about what are the aims we're shooting for where, you know, scientifically we're trying to understand how better to use theory and practice to help people with suffering and in in practice we're doing the same thing we're trying to not have a person have all of the right and correct thoughts about themselves we're trying to help them use their experience and their minds in a way that helps them achieve their aims and what's important to them so it's it's a it's a real it's a pragmatic focus and and it flows directly from not having to care not having to be invested in Ultimately, whether what we're experiencing is true or not true. And again, that doesn't mean that truth isn't important. It just means for the purposes of this, that's not what we're focused on. And then the other part of functional contextualism that's really important that, of course, sort of flows right into this is, is contextualism itself, which is a simply saying that everything that happens, you know, it's not just a simple event of one thing interacting with another thing, the context in which that interaction happens matters. And actually the history of interactions between those two things matter. So when you encounter psychedelics, it isn't just like the thing that's relevant is this drug. The thing that's relevant is where you're taking it, with whom, what the scene is. Is it night? Is it day? Is it music? Uh, what are your thoughts about it are you in an environment in which you feel safe are you in an environment in which it is legal or against the law what are you know, what is your history of trauma what is your family like all of you are part of the context all of the environment all of the people you're interacting with and these are all important you can't just isolate and
1: remove context without changing everything yeah this idea of set and setting which is so popular uh, in working with psychedelics, uh, is something that we've we've known for a while. And contextualism argues that set and setting matter kind of all the time. It's not just when we're doing psychedelics. And as you mentioned, Nate, all these different levels of context can impact um, what we're looking at. So it could be my mood for the day. It could be... My history could be the socio-political systems that I'm embedded in. These all have an influence. And so contextualism, you know, different traditions or uh, approaches that come out of contextualism are very much oriented towards Mm -hmm. understanding behavior in context. And so it's hard to say, like... If if we take like a clinical example of let's say drinking alcohol, there's no theory about why people drink because there's probably millions of variables that go into each and every person's unique reason for drinking, and so there's I mean we're not the only kind of therapist to do this obviously, but I think maybe perhaps more than other therapists, we're really trained to not look at just the outside of what a client's saying. Oh, I drink a lot. And then that's going to, you know, that's going to trigger in us our associations of drinking, maybe our own history, what we've learned. Um, and so, you know, let's say if we were operating from a more like truth criteria, we might say, we might bring out the uh, the CDC's guidelines for what's excessive amounts of alcohol up mm-hmm. oh, 13 drinks mm-hmm. a week. They have an alcohol abuse disorder. Time to pull out that manual. I'm sort of exaggerating that approach a bit. I don't think anyone actually does that, but, but, but that could trigger, you know, someone says, Hey, I'm drinking that much. And, and so what contextualism would say is, well, let's like step back and really try to understand this behavior. What, why are they drinking? What are the different reasons that are going into that behavior? Mm -hmm. And really, if we're going to do something about it, you know, if the client wants to change it, we have to really understand there's there's probably some very good reasons why they're drinking. There's some benefits that's occurring. And so if we want to change the behavior, we have to change the context. And that's one of yes. the fundamental pieces about contextual therapy that's a little different. It's not about like you changing the way you look at things or you changing something within yourself. It's about making changes to your life so that your life then occasions different types of experiences. We can't change. We don't think we can change emotions directly. But if we change our environments or we change the context in which we're living, then perhaps we might have a different set of emotions. Yeah. Wow.
0: There's there's so much there. You know, I think a lot of times it's easy to get hung up on on a behavior and looking at the what we sometimes call like the topography of the behavior. Like what if you're just describing the behavior, describing what happens, describing what you know, an event is like by looking at it, uh, that only gives you partial information, right? So to stay with drinking, right? You know, a person goes to a bar and they drink eight beers and they become intoxicated, right? So that's the description of the behavior, but that doesn't really tell us that much useful about it. You know, maybe, you know, they're celebrating a raise and it's something they do occasionally and they're with friends. And they go home and they sleep it off and they resume normal activities. And it's great. Maybe it's something they do commonly. And it's because they are in a great deal of pain and that helps them bear the pain. Now, what we have here is the same behavior, radically different meanings, radically different approaches to that. And so, and then, you know, and that's a relatively simple example, right? Like it's pretty easy to tell the difference between what those two mean, but in any sort of behavior, we have to get to the context of that. We have to know what it means in the context of a person's life, in the context
1: of, you know, their day-to-day experience. One thing you said earlier about meaning-making that I think is important to understand is that there is an evolutionary purpose to that. We are hardwired to try to make sense of our environments. We really want to have a coherent way of understanding how things are working. We like when things are predictable. We don't like change. These are kind of general statements about most people. And that's has to do with safety, right? If I can understand how things are and I can predict them, I can feel like I can avoid danger and I can keep myself alive. And so when things happen that are unclear, that don't fit in, with our way of understanding the world, you know, maybe we lose somebody we really care about and we're forced to confront this idea of there's so much pain. Why is there so much pain? Or somebody betrays us and we we don't know why. We trusted them and they just, they do something to really hurt us. Our minds can't just leave that and say, oh, well, I guess, I'm not sure what happened there, Uh, our minds are going to get busy with trying to make stories about things that are not clear. And in some ways, psychedelics are an extreme example of an unclear, ambiguous event where you go into this altered state and when you come out of it, your mind is going to try to make sense of that and fit it into what it already knows about the world. And, and depending on the type of experience that you've had, in many, many psychedelic experiences, that's not an easy task to do. How do I make sense of what happened? And sometimes for a lot of folks with psychedelics, it means rewriting their stories about everything. It means kind of going back to the drawing board in some degree. And that could be good if that's done in a way that's uh, therapeutic and beneficial and with, with care and support and community that might not be such a bad thing, especially if the older stories weren't working. Um, you know, I, 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 I talk to clients about this regularly. Like we will, we would rather be right about something, even if it causes suffering just because like if, if, you know, if I can predict that, you know, all people are bad and all people are going to hurt me, I can't trust people. And then I don't, I don't actually, let's say, get close to people and I don't test that out. I, it, it, there's almost like a safety in that familiarity of that belief and, and maintaining that belief that, that helps me like feel like I have a sense of how the world works, even if it's wrong. It, it allows me to function in a way that I can get through my day-to-day life. Yes.
0: A map um a metaphor I like a lot is we develop, grow up from from the earliest stages of our life. And you know, we we're engaged in this process of meaning making about as soon as we start learning words. As soon as we learn that words represent things, then we are what we're doing is we're map making. We're cartographers of reality. At that point, we're trying to describe the world around us using words, you know. Which words are symbols, right? So we're 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 creating a map of of reality with our symbols, and you know we do that. Like this means tree. That means dog. This you know. And we're building this this network that's a map. It's this huge map of reality, and it's really it feels really important right, that we are on familiar territory, that we know the terrain, you know? And what you're describing are these big events that happen sometimes and they send these deep ripples through our gut that says, hold on, the map's wrong. And, And that's very hard to adapt to. And I think humans, and this is what I think what you're getting at when you say we tend to be resistant to change. I mean, I think oftentimes humans would rather adhere to our map than to actual reality. So when there's a discrepancy that opens up, we're going to double down and cling to our map. You know, and to make this really relevant right now, I think that this is something that is super observable in our culture right now as we're dealing with coronavirus. And uh, I've really paid attention to and been deeply disturbed by a lot of like conspiracy theories that have been rippling through our culture. And I think that is very much a, a result of this experience is, you know, we have a map. This is how the world's supposed to work. And something comes in and just reveals that like, nope, your map's off. Not everything keeps going day in, day out, the same as it did before. And not all of our systems are stable and we're actually are vulnerable to really crazy things like viruses and climate change and this and that. And I think that is psychologically really hard to integrate with somebody who has a map that they want to cling to very rigidly. And so I don't want to change my map so I'll say this conspiracy theory that allows me to keep my map intact, and there's there's some people out here who are in control, and they're like, I'm going to go with that instead of actually adapting my map so that my map more closely resembles reality. you know, And that is, to me, one of the primary, if not the primary functions of a psychedelic trip. Is what a like when you take that and your words dissolve, and there's no coincidence there that it's the words dissolving are the thing that because this map is verbally created. These words dissolve, and what you're left with is a direct, unmediated experience of reality, in my view. Direct un and you know, that's a bit of an ontological leap. Is it reality? I don't know. Um but you are having an unmediated direct experience. We'll just leave it at that. You're having a direct unmediated experience of the world around you and your map is not getting in the way. And I believe that one of the things that a psychedelic experience allows us to do is to better calibrate our map, you know, because when we get our map, we take our map offline for a little bit and experience our life without experiencing it through the lens or the filter of our learned experience. You know, we come back and then we can integrate that experience of an unmediated direct experience with that of how our map normally is and it can be yeah much more much more
1: calibrated and much more useful so you point to the central role of language and cognition in human suffering and contextual behavioral science places a lot of emphasis on the role of language and has terms and concepts and really a whole vocabulary that we call relational frame theory that uh, it grows out of behaviorism, and uh, traditions of understanding how the thinking mind works and really puts language kind of at the center of a lot of our suffering. And of course, language is a tool that allows us to do many great things, but it, it also allows us to get ourselves into a lot of trouble. And so when you take psychedelics, you often can have this experience as Nate is describing where that, that, that map is gone and the normal kind of linguistic framework that we are, that we're in day in and day out, we step outside of. I, I, you know I kind of think of it sometimes as, you know, a fish doesn't know it's in water until one day it gets near the surface and flops itself out of the water and goes into the air and is like, holy crap, there's a whole other thing happening here and goes back in the water. Now it can understand the water that it's swimming in <laughs> with, with some perspective. And until we can step outside of our linguistic maps, it's very hard to understand what, what that even means. And of course, like adults, are not the only tool for stepping outside of language. We have a lot of other tools, you know, meditation or fasting or praying or there's a whole lot of things that we could put up in that category as, as tools that we can use to help with, with this process of getting beyond language and seeing how language limits us, how language creates suffering. And so really for contextual behavioral science approaches, the idea and the limitations of language are really at the forefront of working with people and helping them reduce their suffering.
0: So, as you mentioned before, language and cognition are at the root of a lot of human suffering. And, you know, here, here I think is a, is a tremendous area of overlap. You know, functional contextualism, uh, you know, from that rises a particular theory of language and cognition, relational frame theory, that is really important in understanding uh, the ways in which uh, language and cognition work to enhance or increase our suffering i believe and you might think differently but i think it's outside of the scope of this podcast to too much to go too deeply into relational frame theory what i think we should do is sometimes t- sometime interview uh, an expert in relational frame theory and that might be more profitable but it is at the core of the approach that we take is approach to language and cognition that is consistent with reducing human suffering and acceptance and commitment therapy which is the therapy that you and I both practice sort of rises from RFT and RFT you know informs a, a number of interventions that are built around sort of sidestepping this trap that language builds. You know, Language builds this trap for us. It builds this trap of you know, creating a map and clinging to that map uh, and that network that we create in our mind of language that becomes so powerful that it's even more powerful than the world around us that we see with our eyes. We lose our sensitivity to the world around us that we see with our eyes, feel with our hands. Because we are operating from that map, we are operating from this network in our mind that we have built, that we have constructed from our history with language. And so a huge part of psychedelics and a huge part of acceptance commitment therapy and other contextual based therapies are to become more sensitive to your environment, to become more sensitive to your context, to really to learn from what's around you instead of repeatedly learn the same thing that your mind is telling you again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and likewise, not really learning from that, but failing to learn because you're sort of adhering to the same messages that your mind gives you again, and again, and again, and again, when we learn to disentangle ourselves from that, you know, which is not done by arguing with it, trying to straighten out our network so that they are more correct you know, it's not done by fighting with the network. It's done by being able to step outside of that network and see it for what it is, you know, and also have this experience that is not mediated by that. So contextual
1: behavioral science is a way of doing science. And this could also be a whole nother discussion uh, for folks who are nerdy and geek out on this kind of science stuff, but there really is no one science. There's different ways to, to do science, actually. And so when we talk about ACT or acceptance commitment therapy, that is um, a type of therapy that comes out of this tradition. Relational frame theory is another kind of approach that comp- that is within contextual behavioral science. And so we might use some of these terms interchangeably like functional contextualism, contextual behavioral science, Uh, We're not going to go into a lot of depth, as as you mentioned, Nate, about some of the more philosophical background or relational frame theory. But we thought it would be good just to kind of outline what we see as some of the most important terms or concepts within this kind of umbrella of tradition that ACT finds itself in. And especially how they relate to psychedelics,
0: you know, in general um, approaches that come from a functional contextual be uh, functional contextual perspective, tend to be uh, experiential and they tend to be process oriented. So experiential means they focus on an experience. So again, that kind of goes to this idea of not being mediated by simply our mental understanding. So it's a challenge in, so for instance, to go to, to make it relevant to therapy. For a minute, you know, it, it's a challenge to we're going to sit here and we're talk, going to talk about change. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to use our words and we're going to just talk about what it would look like if we were to can try to make change, you know. And when we're doing that, we're we're using words, but we're also just really stuck in our networks because we're just talking about it. like it's still we're still in that Web. Uh, and so. When we practice an experiential therapy, we try to actually evoke experiences that allow a person in the moment to have a different, to shift their perspective, to have a different experience than what their network would normally say. So that's a really tricky thing. You know, you're trying to do an end-around round language by using language. And you know, there's a lot of different techniques to do that, that we're not going to get into today uh, or here. Um, but I think that that is one of the things, and this is where we'll dig in a lot. One of the things where psychedelics are extremely helpful is is they kind of give you that sort of short circuit the language function for a moment and allow you get to experience. So it's it's a very much an experiential therapy or an experiential an experiential pharmacotherapy you know, that leads to an experiential therapy. You know, the other part of you know a contextual behavioral approach is that uh, act and other approaches that are similar act and act is, I don't even know if we've defined as acceptance and commitment therapy that we'll talk much more about in the next podcast, uh, but other contextual behavioral approach approaches are process oriented rather than, you know, outcome oriented, you know, and it's very much about what are the processes of change? You know, we, we, you know, to help a person change, you know, it isn't enough to just say, well, this is the outcome we want. It's, you know, or this is, we're going to define the problem in this very particular way. To say, well, what would you know healthy functioning look like, and how does one get from here to there? Mm-hmm. You want to say more about process based approaches?
1: Yeah, one thing I love about working with the ACT model with my clients is, is it's not a disease model, it's not focused on this idea that you know, mental illness, which I don't like, really like that term either, but, but what what we commonly refer to as mental illness is some sort of disease that you get uh, and then you have these symptoms and then you have to get rid of that disease. Rather, ACT um, really looks at human suffering from a lens that sees it as these, this is what it means to be human. These are the processes of Our minds and our ways of functioning in life that contribute to suffering so if we're not for example in the present moment if we're constantly worrying in the past you know worrying in the future ruminating in the past for example we are likely going to suffer more and so act as a trans diagnostic approach it doesn't see suffering as these categories these diagnostic entities that are to be treated um, with, you know, this gets that treatment, this gets that treatment. ACT really looks at a lot of what we would normally label as mental illness as these basic processes that are kind of going awry or these these kind of underlying mechanisms of human psychology that when a certain context... occurs, sets them up in such a way that a person is really suffering a lot.
0: Yes. um, That's, and that's, that's a, one of my favorite parts personally is, you know, it, it really allows us to not, we don't have to jump into the disease model. We don't have to, we don't have to buy that idea that, wow, there's something in this particular way that is like essentially wrong with you. We don't have to buy that at all. You know, we can instead look at it as, you know, you're experiencing this suffering in a particular way. And here are some processes that we can actually alter through our work together, you know, that then can allow you to experience your life in a different way, in a more flexible way, you know, and that flexibility, psychological flexibility is really, I'd I'd say, Often used as the aim, you know, and, and that I think is another way of saying sensitivity to context. You're able to see and experience the world around you in a way that allows you to take action that is effective, as opposed to operating from this metaphorical mental map that disallows you from taking effective action. And there are processes there. There are you know ways in which you can learn to participate in your life differently. And I think those processes that, um, and there are six of them in ACT, that we'll go into a lot more detail next time, are incredibly consistent with experiences
1: that are described from psychedelic use. And the contextual approach, what that adds to understanding suffering on an individual level, again, a client who presents with, say, anxiety or depression, we're going to look not just that their lives let's say um the family that they're in or the job that they're in but but really the the some larger systems so for example if it's a person of color the systems of oppression that they find themselves in and so a lot of what we label you know, maybe more mainstream approaches might see as like individual pathology from a contextual perspective is due to cultural factors. Something I say to my clients regularly is that we live in a sick culture. And so to, you know, to, to expect that we're going to be thriving and, and feeling a sense of meaning and purpose when our culture is so sick in a lot of different ways is, it's a, that's that's a hard thing to expect. and so it's it could be very normalizing when we can make contact with that and see that we're you know we're not separate from our environments and we're not separate from the systems that we're in. Mm. And if the systems that we're in are unfair or unjust or are oppressive, that we're going to we're going to suffer from that or we're going to have, there's going to be consequences from that, that an individual on the individual level. um, It's not that like, there's nothing to be done about that, but we don't want to lose sight that those factors are there. If, if they are there.
0: Absolutely. That's so important. You know, when we think about, okay, these are things we can, these, these are processes we can learn to alter. And there's a real risk there that I actually momentarily fell into of, just seeing, like, hey, if you change your perspective, then you can just walk away from all your problems because all you have to do is just get your little mental map there, better calibrated and be sensitive to context and then your suffering will go away. And that is um, certainly not a road I would suggest going down because of all the things that you're stating is you know, your environment still remains what your environment is. Your, our cultural still context still remains what our con- cultural context is. And so... While we can hopefully adjust better because, you know, that's what we can do as individuals, uh, we also have to keep an eye out on, well, how can I change my environment? How can I, and I think this is a really big thing, is how can I work with other people? How can I connect with other people to try to create change uh, in my community? Uh, in my, in my world, in our culture, uh, you know, finding solidarity with other people to make these changes instead of feeling like I isolated me need to just adapt myself better to this madness. And, you know, as I referenced in, in the coronavirus and, you know, as we're recording this, this is the same the day after the president of the United States was just um, diagnosed with COVID. And, you know, after the week we've had already, uh, our cultural context right now is, near madness <laughs> and that has an effect even if you're really well adjusted you look at the world you, you you experience that bombarding you every day and you know it's very hard to say just you know if you can just be really adaptive these things aren't going to induce suffering you know, so, so I didn't mean to implicate that at all because I think what um, psychedelics do as well is actually help highlight this for us, and we can see those systems pretty clearly. You know, when we get out of our maps of of of, of seeing things the way we always see them, uh, it allows us to clarify our values and clarify when we are in circumstances that are
1: pressuring us to act in violation of those values. And, and because a lot of times those cultural factors might be invisible, I right? mean, it's not. It's not, mm-hmm. especially if you're not being affected by them, right? And that's what's happening, like with when we talk about white privilege and not not seeing the uh, the oppressive systems that a, a Black Indigenous person of color has to has to navigate on their in their daily life. And I think one of the criticisms of psychedelics. For individuals who identify as BIPOC or um, have, you know, are are more embedded in in systems where there is oppression, um, is that it's it's sort of unfair to give them this experience and then just send them back into those environments that they've come from expecting that Mm -hmm. the burden is on them to heal, or It's, they need to do something differently. And I think that, that criticism has, has a lot of weight. I, I still think there's, it is possible that there's healing that we can still do on an individual level, but we can't make the mistake of thinking that that's, completely our responsibility and that there needs to be healing on multiple levels, not just individually, but obviously on much, much larger systems of communities and our culture at large. Yes, absolutely. And I
0: think that's, you know, with psychedelic use, it has to be, and it's, it's, it's a risk, I think when, because, you know, especially if we're medicalizing it right now, and when we are medicalizing something, we are inherently defining it individually right so somebody you're going to go get treatment for depression i'm going to get treatment for depression now it's true that this could be really effective for that but i, I think it would be a risk if we if it reinforced our idea of depression as an individual malady versus a uh, you know a symptom that shows up in an individual um, that is as much or more you know, a, a reflection of our culture, of society, of the local environment. And so, you know, it does risk sort of individualizing suffering that isn't strictly the domain of the individual. And I think, we, we you know, psychedelics don't inherently do that. But I think when we apply the medical model to that, there's a risk of that because I think In fact, psychedelics do much the opposite. You know, they they generalize more. There is more, and this is described ubiquitously, you know, a feeling of connection to uh, greater humanity, a feeling of connection to the ecosphere, the biosphere, our earth, um, a sense of oneness, of unity. Um, These are common, common experiences, you know, that are not individualistic. So I think in, in many ways, psychedelic experience undermines individualism, but the individual approach to think of our society is extremely powerful. And I think that we should be careful of that, you know, as we, as we tread into this and as we're um, thinking about introducing this into a therapeutic
1: context, we, we really have, this is a dynamic we think we need to be really aware of. And it's one thing to say uh, we're all connected or we're connected to our context. We're connected to our environment. Intellectually you might be able to see that, but it's much different to actually have that experience, okay. um, which a lot of us don't have on a regular basis uh, for various reasons. And that's something that psychedelics can be helpful in, really seeing that we're not separate from you know, the earth that we live on, the, the food that we eat, the water that we take in every day, the air that we're breathing. Here in, um, in Oregon, we just had pretty severe wildfires where for a week I couldn't leave my apartment. And the air even inside my apartment was not really safe to breathe. And it really, you know, it's kind of a cliche thing, cliche thing to say, but it's like you take for granted the air that you breathe until it's not available anymore. And then you realize, Oh, like, this is really great to have all this air here. And I'm, I'm dependent on this. And so what can I do to, to keep this going or to, to take care of this air that's around me maybe I need to plant more trees maybe I need to you know whatever it might be so very often when people have psychedelic experiences the common insight that they have is I wanted I want to pay more attention to taking care of my body and eating well or I want to I want to take care of the planet I want to go out in nature more I want to make sure that we're doing what we can to um, ward against the climate change and things like that. Yeah. I
0: think to connect, you know, when I think, and you experience yourself as a part of the greater whole that lingers, you know, that lingers and that longing to enhance that connection lingers. So like any good question, I'm, you know, mindful that we have been, you know, talking for quite some time and like any good question, you know, why is, why does theory matter? It seemed to unpack, A whole lot of other questions and good discussion. So I think with that, you know, I want to suggest that, you know, next time we talk, we'll go more deeply into acceptance and commitment therapy specifically because that's a modality that both uh, you and I uh, are, are well practiced in. And we'll talk about those processes that are defined by ACT and how those are also extremely consistent with psychedelic medicine and how they can be useful in this sense-making process of preparing for the experience and then integrating the experience. We'll see you next time. All right.